0: Chapter Thirty Three Part One of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter Thirty Three Part One Easter Sunday, April first, eighteen sixty six. I travelled all night to witness Carlyle's installation as Lord Rector of Edinburgh University next day. The sleeping car was then unknown, the night was bitter and snowy, and the journey dismal. The first man I met in Edinburgh was Professor Tyndall, who said he believed we two and Huxley were the only men who had undertaken the hard journey to hear Carlyle. Taking my hand, he said. This is the real kind of tie between America and England. Carlyle belongs equally to both. No reader in the twentieth century can realize the impression made by Carlyle that day. There is no longer the clear historic background behind that figure, the weary trials, the poverty and want, the long lonely studies through which the little boy of fourteen climbed on to a youthful condition still more rugged and, finally, despite his alienation of pulpit and populace, gained this height. As Carlyle entered the university theatre, there walked beside him the venerable Sir David Brewster, fourteen years his senior, who first recognized his ability and gave him literary employment. The one, now principal, the other, Lord Rector, they moved forward in their gold-laced robes, while professors, students, ladies stood up cheering, waving hats, handkerchiefs, programs in ecstasy. Near me sat Huxley, and not far away Tyndall, in whose eyes I saw tears, unless my own dim eyes deceived me. Carlyle sat there during the preliminaries, scanning the faces before him, among which were a score that would bring to him memories of this or that quiet retreat in scotland known in youth or boyhood before he began his address carlyle shook himself free of the gold lace gown and laid it on the back of a chair this movement excited audible mirth in the audience and the face of the old principal beamed for myself i saw in the act the biographer of cromwell saying take away that bauble. No stage actor could with more art have indicated that the conventionalities were about to be laid aside. I had, as I thought, seen and heard Carlyle in every mood and expression, but now discovered what immeasurable resources lay in this man. The grand sincerity, the drolleries, the auroral flashes of mystical intimation, the lightnings of scorn for things low and base, all of these severally taking on physiognomical expression in word, tone, movement of the head, color of the face, brought before us a being whose physical form was a transparency of his thought and feeling. When Carlyle sat down there was an audible motion, as of a breath long held by all present, then a cry from the students, an exultation. They rose up, all arose, waving their arms excitedly. Some pressed forward, as if wishing to embrace him or to clasp his knees. Others were weeping. What had been heard that day was more than could be reported. It was the ineffable spirit that went forth from the deeps of a great heart, and from the ages stored up in it, and deep answered unto deep. When Carlyle came out, A carriage was waiting to take him to the house of Mr. Erskine, of Lynn but he begged to be allowed to walk. Carlyle had known I was going to Edinburgh, and on arrival I found a note from him asking me to wait for him at the door of the theatre. I was there, and he desired me to see after the newspaper report. But as we started off to walk he was identified by a delighted crowd who extemporized a demonstration. He found it best to take a cab, but, before entering it, gave a friendly look on those who were cheering him, saying, however, softly, as if to himself, "'Poor fellows, poor fellows!' The scene I had witnessed was more phenomenal than I could at once take in. It was the revelation of a kind of eloquence and spiritual affluence which set me dreaming. What had the pulpit lost— By putting up dogmas that barred Carlyle away from the career in which he might have illumined all Christendom. The three men who chiefly molded the thought of their generation in England and America were all trained for the pulpit Darwin, Carlyle, Emerson. They were all shut out of it by their intellectual honesty and the inability of the churches to recognize the superiority of a great living oracle to the creeds of defunct crania. I find the following in my notebook. April fourth. Evening at erskine's dinner. Present. Thomas Carlyle and Dr. John Carlyle. Mr. Dundas, lawyer and antiquarian. Dr. John Brown, author of Rab, etc. Professor Lushington of Glasgow University, whose wife, Tennyson's sister, came in after dinner. And one or two other gentlemen and ladies. When we followed the ladies to the drawing-room, they all wished to be introduced to Carlyle. Presently he came to the far end of the room where I was, and said, "'Oh, dear, I haven't any rest at all. I wish I was through with it.' "'But,' I said, "'you are looking better than usual.' "'Yes, well, it may make me better in the end, but it's tedious work. I am always in company, and see nobody preferable to vacuity.' "'Please, sir,' Please, madam, might I exchange you for nothing at all? A laugh that seemed to do him good. I'm going up to a smoking-room they've provided me with. Will you come with me? At the top of the house, the long pipe lighted, Carlyle stretched himself in his favorite home position on the floor, and began a slow-running talk. Go over the path to Stirling, Dundee if possible, St. Andrews, "'You will come down the coast by Kirkaldy. "'Ah, uh, a long time since I taught school in that place. "'Presently, after some interval of silence, "'every trace of care and weariness in his face passed away. "'With a sweet, childlike expression he looked at me, "'and, knowing well the affection as well as the literary enthusiasm "'that brought to his side a young friend of Emerson, "'he took me into his confidence. "'In the following report of his talk, I enclose in brackets paragraphs that were recorded at somewhat later dates. It seems very strange as I look back over it all now, so far away, and the faces that grew aged and then vanished. A greater debt I owe to my father than he lived long enough to have fully paid to him. He was a very thoughtful and earnest kind of man, even to sternness. He was fond of reading, too, particularly the reading of theology. Old John Owen of the seventeenth century was his favorite author. He could not tolerate anything fictitious in books, and sternly forbade us to spend our time over the Arabian nights—those downright lies, he called them. He was grimly religious. I remember him going into the kitchen, where some servants were dancing, and reminding them very emphatically that they were dancing on the verge of a place which no politeness ever prevented his mentioning on fit occasion. He himself walked as a man in the full presence of heaven and hell and the day of judgment. They were always imminent. One evening some people were playing cards in the kitchen when the bakehouse caught fire. The events were to him, as cause and effect, and henceforth there was a flaming handwriting on our walls against all cards. All of which was the hard outside of a genuine veracity and earnestness of nature such as I have not found so common among men as to think of them in him without respect. My mother stands in my memory as beautiful in all that makes excellence of woman. Pious and gentle she was, with an unweariable devotedness to her family, a loftiness of moral aim and religious conviction, which gave her presence in her humble home a certain graciousness, and, even as I see it now, dignity, and with it, too, a good deal of wit and originality of mind. No man ever had better opportunities than I for comprehending, were they comprehensible the great deeps of a mother's love for her children. Nearly my first profound impressions in this world are connected with the death of an infant sister, an event whose sorrowfulness was made known to me in the inconsolable grief of my mother. For a long time she seemed to dissolve in tears, only tears. For several months not one night passed, but she dreamed of holding her babe in her arms, and clasping it to her breast. At length one morning she related a change in her dream. While she held the child in her arms, it seemed to break up into small fragments, and so crumbled away and vanished. From that night her vision of the babe and dream of it clasping never returned. The only fault I can remember in my mother was her being too mild and peaceable for the planet she lived in. When I was sent to school she piously enjoined on me that I should, under no conceivable circumstances, fight with any boy, nor resist evil done to me, and her instructions were so solemn that for a long time I was accustomed to submit to every kind of injustice simply for her sake. It was a sad mistake. When it was practically discovered that I would not defend myself, every kind of indignity was put upon me and my life was made utterly miserable. Fortunately the strain was too great. One day a big boy was annoying me, when it occurred to my mind that existence under such conditions was not supportable. So I slipped off my wooden clog, and therewith suddenly gave that boy a blow on the seat of honor, which sent him sprawling on face and stomach in a convenient mass of mud and water." I shall never forget the burden that rolled off me at that moment. I never had a more heartfelt satisfaction than in witnessing the consternation of that contemporary. It proved to be a measure of peace also. From that time I was troubled by the boys no more. Ah, well, it would be a long story. As with every studious boy of that time and region, the destiny prepared for me was the inevitable Kirk and so I came here to Edinburgh, about fourteen, and went to hard work. And still harder work it was when the university had been passed by, the hardest being to find work. Nearly the only companion I had was poor Edward Irving, then one of the most attractive of youths. We had been to the same Annan school, but he was three years my senior. Here, and for a long time after, destiny threw us a good deal together. Very little help did I get from anybody in those years, and, as I may say, no sympathy at all in all this old town. And if there was any difference, it was found least where I might most have hoped for it. There was Professor Playfair. For years I attended his lectures, in all weathers and all hours. Many and many a time, when the class was called together, it was found to consist of one individual, to wit, of him now speaking, and still oftener, when others were present, the only person who had at all looked into the lesson assigned was the same humble individual. I remember no instance in which these facts elicited any note or comment from that instructor. He once requested me to translate a mathematical paper, and I worked through it the whole of one Sunday, and it was laid before him, and it was received without remark or thanks. After such long years I came to part with him, and to get my certificate. Without a word he wrote on a bit of paper. I certify that Mr. Thomas Carlyle has been in my class during his college course, and has made good progress in his studies. Then he rang a bell, and ordered a servant to open the front door for me. Not the slightest sign that I was a person whom he could have distinguished in any crowd. And so I parted from old Professor Playfair. It had become increasingly clear to me that I could not enter the ministry with any honesty of mind, and nothing else than offering, to say nothing of the utter mental confusion as to what thing was desired, I went away to that lonely, straggling town on the Frith of Forth, Kirkcaldy, possessing then, as still, few objects interesting to any one not engaged in the fishing profession. Two years there of hermitage, loneliness, at the end of which something must be done. Back to Edinburgh, and for a time a small subsistence is obtained by teaching a few pupils, while the law is now the object aimed at. Then came the dreariest years, eating of the heart, misgivings as to whether there shall be presently anything else to eat, disappointment of the nearest and dearest as to the hoped-for entrance on the ministry, and steadily growing disappointment of self with the undertaken law profession. Above all, perhaps, wanderings through mazes of doubt, perpetual questionings unanswered. I had gradually become a devout reader in German literature, and even now began to feel a capacity for work, but heard no voice calling for just the kind of work I felt capable of doing. The first break of grey light in this kind was brought by my old friend David Brewster. He set me to work on the Edinburgh Encyclopedia. There was not much money in it, but a certain drill, and still better a sense of accomplishing something, though far yet from what I was aiming at, as, indeed, it has always been far enough from that. And now things brightened a little. Edward Irving, then amid his worshippers in London, had made the acquaintance of a wealthy family, the Bullers, who had a son with whom all teachers had effected nothing. There were two boys, and he named me as likely to succeed with them. It was in this way that I came to take charge of Charles Buller, afterwards my dear friend, Thackeray's friend also, and I gradually managed to get him ready for Cambridge. Charles and I came to love each other dearly, and we all saw him with pride steadily rising in parliamentary distinction when he died. Poor Charles! He was one of the finest youths I ever knew. The engagement ended without regret, but while it lasted was the means of placing me in circumstances of pecuniary comfort beyond what I had previously known, and of thus giving me the means of doing more congenial work, such as the life of Schiller and Wilhelm Meister's Wanderjahre but one gaunt form had been brought to my side by the strain through which I had passed, who was not in a hurry to quit. Ill health. The reviewers were not able to make much of Wilhelm. De Quincey and Geoffrey looked hard at us. I presently met De Quincey, and he looked pale and uneasy, possibly thinking that he was about to encounter some resentment from the individual whom he had been cutting up but it had made the very smallest impression upon me, and I was quite prepared to listen respectfully to anything he had to say. And, as I remember, he made himself quite agreeable when his nervousness was gone. He had a melodious voice and an affable manner, and his powers of conversation were unusual. He had a soft, courteous way of taking up what you had said, and furthering it, apparently, and you presently discovered that he didn't agree with you at all, and was quietly upsetting your positions, one after another. And now an event, which had been for a long time visible as a possibility, drew on to consummation. In the loneliest period of my later life here in Edinburgh, there was within reach one home and one family to which Irving, always glad to do me a good turn, had introduced me. At Haddington lived the Welshes and there I had formed a friendship with Jane, now Mrs. Carlyle. She was characterized at that time by an earnest desire for knowledge, and I was for a long time aiding and directing her studies. The family were very grateful, and made it a kind of home for me. But when further on our marriage was spoken of, the family, not unnaturally, perhaps mindful of their hereditary dignity—they were descended from John Knox— opposed us rather firmly. But Jane Welsh, having taken her resolution, showed further her ability to defend it against all comers, and she maintained it to the extent of our presently dwelling man and wife at Comley Bank, Edinburgh, and then at the old solitary farmhouse, Craig and Puttuck, that is, Hill of the Hawk." The sketch of it in Goethe's translation of my Schiller was made by George Moir, a lawyer here in Edinburgh, of whom I used to see something. The last time I saw old Puttock, it filled me with sadness, a kind of Valley of Jehoshaphat. Probably it was through both struggles of that time, the end of them being not yet, and the happy events with which it was associated, now buried and gone. It was there, and on our way there, that the greetings and gifts of Goethe overtook us, and it was there that Emerson found us. He came from Dumfries in an old rusty gig, came one day and vanished the next. I had never heard of him. He gave us his brief biography, and told us of his bereavement in loss of his wife. We took a walk while dinner was prepared. We gave him a welcome. We were glad to see him, our house was homely, but she who presided there made it of neatness, such as were at any moment suitable for a visit from any majesty. I did not then adequately recognize Emerson's genius, but my wife and I both thought him a beautiful transparent soul, and he was always a very pleasant object to us in the distance. Now and then a letter came from him, and amid all the smoke and mist of this world it is always as a window flung open to the azure. During all this last weary work of mine, his words have been nearly the only ones about the thing done. Friedrich, to which I have inwardly responded, Yes, 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 and much obliged to you for saying that same. The other day I was staying with some people who talked about the idols of the king, which seemed idle enough, so I took up Emerson's English traits, and soon found myself lost to everything else, wandering amid all manner of sparkling crystals and wonderful luminous vistas, and it really appeared marvellous how many people can read what they sometimes do with such books on their shelves. Emerson has gone a different direction from any in which I can see my way to go, BUT WORDS CANNOT TELL HOW I PRIZE THE OLD FRIENDSHIP FORMED THERE ON CRAIG AND PUDDOCK HILL, OR HOW DEEPLY I HAVE FELT IN ALL HE HAS WRITTEN THE SAME ASPIRING INTELLIGENCE WHICH shone ABOUT US WHEN HE CAME AS A YOUNG MAN, AND LEFT WITH US A MEMORY ALWAYS CHERISHED. AFTER EMERSON LEFT US, GRADUALLY ALL DETERMINING INTERESTS DREW US TO LONDON, AND THERE THE MAIN WORK, SUCH AS IT IS, HAS BEEN DONE and now they have brought me down here and got the talk out of me. I now quote again from my diary. April fifth, A pleasant smoke and chat with Dr. Carlyle. He told me much that was interesting about the Carlyle family. There are now living four brothers and two sisters. One brother and a sister, married, live in Canada. One lives at Annandale, in the middle dale of Dumfriesshire. He, Dr. Carlyle, is six years younger than Thomas. He was induced by a German, with whom he formed a friendship in Edinburgh in early years, to go to Munich to study in his profession. There were also no good medical schools here then. He went a great deal to see Schelling. He belonged to a choice club of German beer-drinkers, who drank, smoked, and gave one another their views on the universe, and it was from his accounts and stories of these men, told to Thomas, that the idea of Teufelsdruck came into his head. Dr. Carlyle was in Italy a great deal. He had a hard fever when twenty years of age, and his hair fell out. When it grew again it was perfectly white as it is now, making him look older than his brother. The father, who died about 1832, was a worker who united the callings of mason and architect. He was remarkable for his religious feeling and shrewd proverbial wisdom, his sayings being quite well known and often repeated in Annandale now. He afterwards became a farmer. The mother, who died 1853, was also a woman of character and beauty, in particular had fine, large, dark eyes she read and understood all of thomas's works though the subjects were new to her and even persisted in reading and re-reading the history of the french revolution until she comprehended it entirely she was at first disturbed by carlyle's new religious views but when she found he was steadfast and in earnest she cared for no more dr carlyle is very remarkable knows all languages and has a fund of information of every kind. End of chapter 33, part 1